0: It's 5.30am, a a chilly negative 5 degrees on a Beijing street, and the pollution, it's pretty awful, but this morning's going to be okay. Last night, I got to download the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast, so this morning on the bus, not only will it be nice and warm, but I'll have the pleasure of the company of the fist, the glove, maybe right-wing Tony, maybe 12th man. Maybe squeaky wheel. Who knows? Anyway, guys, thanks for making this morning's bus ride a little nicer.
1: Yes, welcome, dear listener. Episode two hundred and thirty of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's a bit different this week. Uh, basically, a repeat. What I've done is I've cobbled together a few different uh, sections and a little bit more evergreen in their nature from previous episodes tack them together and I've created this episode because I'm away and I had a big weekend that meant I wasn't going to be able to record something with the boys and it was all just going to be too hard to do something new and we do have a lot of stuff in the back catalogue that's there available for all of you to listen to at whatever time. So uh, I had Streetwalker in mind, I'd hate to think of him getting onto a bus in a cold Beijing morning and not have a podcast to listen to when he's expecting one, so Fear not, we haven't gone on strike, as I threatened to do the other day, and what I've done is I've cobbled together a few bits and pieces. Uh, For those of you who are patrons, fear not, you do not get charged for this episode, so I'm able to tweak things so there's no charge, so that's a freebie in that sense. And uh, if you've listened to all uh, 229 episodes so far, then there'll be nothing new in this, but if you haven't got back as far as episode 88, then you might find a few of our uh, bits of earlier material to be of interest. Uh, as i am going through it, I've found it interesting just the sound quality for starters has improved a lot. And I think just the way we do things has improved as well. So make up your own mind. If you're new to the podcast, if this is the very first episode you've listened to, uh, go and look at another episode because this isn't a good example. Anyway, uh, so to, f- to take up this uh, episode 230, we'll start with some clips uh, going back to episode 88, which was 22nd of March, 2017. This okay. is from an article which I had more towards the end of the running sheet, Scott, but we're it forward. Is the one mm-hmm. called, uh, titled, It's Not All Relative.
2: Ah, uh, yes. I um, only just skimmed that. I yes. didn't get to read it in detail.
1: Yep. By Alan J. Levin, Levinovitz. Yep. And... Here is the argument that he's making is, well, he, he teaches or he has taught a, a, an upper-level course on religion and medicine, and he would often ask students to pronounce on the veracity of beliefs about human physiology and the origin of sickness, and um, he'd be looking at sort of less civilised cultures, should we say, who have strange beliefs. Now, in this article, he uses the word humours, but I think it's a misprint. It must be referring to the humerus, the bone between your shoulder and your elbow. I would have thought so, yeah. The plural mm. being humeri. So I'll use this and I'll say... I'll put in a late edit here. Uh, we subsequently found out from Deep Throat that the four humours relate to kind of an ancient Greek theory described by Hippocrates, where... There were basically four humours being black bile, yellow bile, phlegm and blood. And each of these corresponded to uh, sort of four moods. And it was believed that these four humours were to be in balanced proportions. He asked the students, do we have four humors Are chakras real? Is illness caused by demonic possession? Um, These questions come in the context of studying different cultures' healing traditions, from wholesale medicine in West Africa to traditional Chinese medicine. And he makes the point that when he's asking his students, you know, is there anything worthwhile in this stuff, the students are very wary of judging cultural practices that aren't their own. And they'll often say, uh, they'll soften their answer. It says, um... For me, this or for them, that. So for me, it's not true that we have, we have four humori, but for them, it is. And he says, that position, however well-intentioned, uh, is perilously similar to the one now being weaponised by dark political forces. Uh, but stay with me on this, listener. I'm going to tie all this in together with the River Person and the Shaquille O'Neal story. It'll, it'll all make sense. <laughs> You've got Newt Gingrich asserting in a television interview that violent crime was up. Confronted by statistics to the contrary, he appealed to populist viewpoints. The average American, I will bet to you this morning, does not think that crime is down, does not think that we are safer. People feel more threatened. As a political candidate, I'll go with what people feel. So he's saying, well, it doesn't matter what the stats are. What do people think? And Bill O'Reilly questioned President Trump on his claim that three million illegal aliens voted in the election. And O'Reilly asked for data, and the president replied, many people have come out and said, I'm right. And... um. Uh, what, he's, uh, what the article goes on to say is that when we are reticent to question uh, more primitive cultures about the scientific veracity of their claims about medicine, what we are doing is we're, uh, we're setting up a system where it's okay to question science. Like we're saying for some people it is okay... And that is Western um, elitists. We shouldn't be forcing our our Western civilization view on other people. And what that does is that assists the whole sort of fake news um, scenario that we're looking at at the moment. Because um, what you've got um, is people like Donald Trump saying, "Well." You don't have to listen to these elitists with their expert views on climate change or other matters. You can have your own view, which is kind of what people are saying. If you're going to say to the Maori people, (laughs) of course a river's a person. You can well, I don't think a river is a person, but you can have your own view if that's the case. Or Shaquille O'Neal, you know, I don't. The earth is flat. You can think the earth is flat. I don't, but you can have your own view. Then we can't be surprised when an anti-vaccinator says, well, experts can have their own view, but I'll have my view because mm. we've set up a scenario where we're actually delegitimized the importance of being factually correct. Exactly, yeah. So I quite liked the theme of the article. Um, so where we're trying to be respectful of these groups, because it seems nasty to say, don't be so bloody stupid, a river is not a person, Um That actually sets up a situation for us later on that people no longer respect what is objectively true because Mm. we sweep it under the rug when we feel it's necessary for people we don't want to offend. Mm. So, um, so yes, so the West is wrong for criticising Chinese medicine or Maori River people. The West cannot force its standard of truth on the less powerful so, objective truth is devalued so that people can say, Well, I don't trust Western science when it comes to vaccinations. Hence, why, Scott, while it might seem mean of us to poo poo the idea of a river being a person, and perhaps not so mean to poo poo Chipreon O'Neill about the earth being flat, <laughs> we're performing a vital. S- function in society, where we're maintaining the value of objective truth. We are, yes. Scott, uh, article titled, well, two articles that are related to each other. Um, why you think you're right even when you're wrong. And we'll start with this one, the depressing psychological theory that explains Washington. Did I give you that one? I might not You give did you give it
2: to me, that okay. one, yeah.
1: Okay. So, um... Oh... It
2: basically goes into the whole uh, identity politics, doesn't
1: it? It does, and the way people are so keen to think along the lines of whatever group they've aligned with. Mm. So, um, so what we had here is, by way of background, a guy called Myerson published an article in Rolling Stone, Five Economic Reforms Millennials Should Be Fighting For, and – uh the five things he listed were um efforts to do away with unemployment, um and then in relation to jobs, landlords, private capital ownership, and Wall Street. So the last four uh were things that made conservatives' heads explode. <laughs> um But the po- the sort of the policies when you actually looked at them weren't that radical. Um his agenda at its core called for work guarantee, a basic minimum income, a land value tax, a sovereign wealth fund and a public banking option. And uh, as noted by this guy, Dylan Matthews, all of those policies uh, that Republicans were labelling as socialism have actually been endorsed by major conservatives. So on the face of them, they looked anti-conservative. When you actually read the detail a lot of the stuff was stuff that Conservatives have actually been in favour of. So what this guy did was he rewrote the article from the Conservative point of view and said that these were policies that the Conservatives were in favour of. So rewriting it and saying that the Conservatives were in favour of these policies, all of a sudden the Conservatives liked the article and the Liberals, well, they didn't like the article. Mm. So... Um, The policies exactly the same. Simply rephrasing the article to say, well, this is one that the Republicans are in favour of, is enough for Republicans to say, okay, I'm in favour of it too. Exactly, yeah. Um, So, uh, two articles both advocating the same policies, one of them thrilled Liberals and infuriated Conservatives, the other infuriated Liberals and thrilled Conservatives. So... If you're able to attach things or say that your group is for something, then your group members will swallow it and they won't care what the detail is. They'll just accept it. And mm. um, uh, so what this is saying that oft- and oftentimes when we think we're engaged in reasoned policy discussion, we're actually Engaged in complex efforts to rationalise the direction in which our tribal affiliations are pushing us. So when faced with those bunch of policies, if you're a Conservative, you will be in your head rationalising, and and you're told that Conservatives like those policies, then you'll be rationalising in your head as to why you should like them, uh, is what he's saying. So um, another study done... By a Jeffrey Cohen, professor of Psychology at Stanford. He produced multiple versions of a welfare article. Some students read about a program that was extremely generous, more generous in fact than any welfare policy that has ever existed in the United States, while others were presented with a very stingy proposal. But there was a twist. Some versions of the article about the generous proposal, portrayed it as being endorsed by the Republican Party. Some versions about the MEGA program were described as having Democrat support. The results showed that for both Liberal and Conservative participants, uh, the effect of a reference group, meaning being told which party was in favour of it, uh, overrode the information of policy content. If their party endorsed it, Liberals supported even a harsh welfare program and if Conservatives supported uh, even a lavish one, just depending on whether their party – it just gives you no hope, Scott. It really doesn't, does it? The merits of cases don't matter anymore.
2: And, you know, after I read that I thought to myself, how do I see things? Because I'd always thought to myself that I've been pretty even-handed with my – review of uh, entitlements and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I think I have been, but it did make me question my own uh, judgment, you know. It, it did make me think to myself, have I actually been fair and reasonable with every proposal that's been put in front of me?
1: Mm. Yes. Um, so this, uh, a bit further on, um uh, uh, once group loyalties are engaged, you can't change people's minds by utterly refuting their arguments. Thinking is mostly just rationalisation, mostly just a search for supporting evidence. This is depressing, Scott.
2: It is the depressing. Yeah.
1: Cases just don't seem to matter
2: no, once group it's,
1: loyalties are engaged.
2: It really does make you think, doesn't it? It really does make you think, have we got the right decision here? But anyway, it's... um,
1: So there's some studies uh, done showing that. And an article that is related to that, Why You Think You're Right Even When You're Wrong, talks about two different sort of states of mind where you can either be a soldier or a scout. So if you're a soldier on the battlefield... You're just at a heightened state where you need to protect yourself and your side and defeat the enemy. Mm. So that's a soldier state. And at that point, truth doesn't really matter to you. You're just you're surviving no, for your right. yeah. for your team. Yep. Um, the other role in a in an army or battle is the scout. So the scout really wants to know what's out there as accurately as possible. Yeah. And Too often we are in a soldier mentality where it's like, well, our team's under attack. Yes, we've got to shoot back, yeah. Justify our team's position. Mm. And we need to be more of a scout mentality where we're just looking around and going, well, what is really going on out there? You know, is that, you know, a battalion over there hiding behind those bushes (laughs) or is, you know, is that river, how deep is it? Can people cross it? Like, just an inquiring mind that is just trying to get the truth of an issue. So, soldier mentality versus a scout mentality. Um, the other term that comes up is uh, motivated motivated reasoning. And the example given is um, um, if you follow sport, when the referee judges your team has committed a foul, for example, you're probably highly motivated to find reasons why he's wrong. <laughs> But if he judges that the other team committed a foul, then that's a good call. You listener, I play competitive squash every Thursday night and I can tell you that that is exactly what happens so often. <laughs> people see things through the prism of their own self-interest so much. It's and But we don't, you know, recognise that we do that so much in the world of sort of topics we talk about, Scott, and policy Ooh. and what's going on in the world. But... If people jump onto a, a part of a side, then they'll just rationalise whatever their side has decided.
2: Um, it's frightening. Exactly. And that, I think is, that is, I think, uh, a lot what's going on with uh, Facebook comments and that sort of stuff. It is people just thinking to themselves, well, this would irritate my side, therefore I have to be on it. You know, mm. it's, uh,
1: yep. So the key thing for us is to try and have a scout mindset. Um, if we really want to improve our judgment as individuals and as society, what well, What we need most – now, this is interesting – is not more instruction in logic, rhetoric, probability, or economics, even though those things are valuable. Um, What we need to use um, these principles well is scout mindset. So, uh, from the secular party, Joe is often talking about critical thinking and the need for logic and – rhetoric and probability, etc., um, and he's right, but what this article is saying that without addressing the mindset of people, you're gonna get nowhere because mm. even the most logical people are just gonna use that logic as a means of rationalizing the position that their group has decided to take.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm, so we're gonna get people to step outside their, their group loyalty positions. That's gonna to be tough. Doesn't, the article doesn't say how to do that, but that's no. yeah, that's what we're going to do. Did you know about this? In the 1980s, there was a restaurant chain called A&W who wanted to create a burger that would compete with McDonald's popular quarter pounder. You familiar with the quarter pounder, Scott?
2: Yeah, I know the quarter pounder, yeah. Mm.
1: So they created the third pounder, which had more beef, was less expensive, and did better in blind taste tests. It was a failure. The reason is, focus groups found that the name was the problem. Customers believed that they were being overcharged, assuming that a third of a pound of a beef was less than a quarter of a pound of beef since the three in one third is smaller than the four in one quarter. <laughs> Next up is a clip from episode 90 from the 5th of April 2017. Scott, it's not looking good for men. No. <laughs> I really like this article. This, dear listener, is from the New York Times. The increasing significance of the decline of men. So, at one end of the scale, men continue to dominate. Uh, just last year, 95% of Fortune 500 CEOs were male. Um So, you know, and you look around the world and you think, well, men have got it made because they seem to have all the advantages. But this article um, provides some reasons why that's not going to continue down the track. Um, A study by Dallas Federal Reserve published in 2014 um, when a lot of middle-skill jobs had been lost in the U.S. labour market. Uh, So middle-skill jobs lost the majority of women who had those jobs uh, managed to upgrade their skills and find better-paying jobs. So the majority of women upgraded and got a better-paying job. By comparison, more than half of the men who lost middle skill jobs had to settle for lower-paying occupations, so they couldn't upgrade and get a better-paying job. Um, what they're finding is... Um, Men whose childhood years were marked by family disruption seemed to fare the worst. So in a different paper, they measured academic and economic outcomes for brothers and sisters in Florida in the decade between 1992 and 2002. And uh, for boys and girls raised in two-parent households, there were only modest differences between the sexes in terms of success at school. The boys tended to earn a bit more than the sisters in early adulthood. So... Yet a brother and sister, pretty much similar outcomes if they're in a two-parent household. But in a single-parent household, what they found was boys performed significantly less well than their sisters in school, and their employment rate as young adults was lower relative to their sisters. So in a single-parent family, boys really suffer compared to girls who more or less achieve the same as if it had been a two-parent family. Um, Mm. Uh, Employment rates of young women are nearly invariant Meaning don't change uh, in relation to family marital status While the employment rates of young adult men from non-married families Are 8 to 10 percentage points below those from married families At all income levels That's amazing Scott That if you'd come from a boy from a single parent Will be Nine percentage points below a boy from a stable home. Girls, mm. no change. Very interesting. Mm. Um, it is very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it becomes even more interesting when you look at the rates of uh, white non-marital births, okay? So white boys... Um. Parents not married, presumably single. Um, in 1965, only 3.4% of whites had a, were born in a non marital situation. By 2014, that was 35.7%. So there's a huge number of, a uh, huge increase in the number of white boys in single families. And also the divorce rate has increased a lot as well. So not only are their mothers not married in the beginning, but they're also becoming divorced along the way. So um, it makes the point that women have strong mate preferences such that they do not want to mate or marry men who are less educated, less intelligent, and less successful than they are. This creates a surplus of men at the low end who are not going to get married. Millions of these less well-educated men are not going to get the benefits of marriage because married men live longer, less likely to become alcoholic, take drugs, commit suicide, etc. Um, Men are really going to have to change their act or have big problems. I think of big guys from the cave days, guys who were good at lifting stuff and hunting and the things that we got genetically selected out for. During the Industrial Revolution, that wasn't so bad, but it's not going to be there anymore. So, high-paying, difficult-to-automate jobs increasingly require social skills. Nearly all job growth since 1980 has been in occupations that are relatively social-skill-intensive. Jobs that require high levels of analytical and mathematical reasoning but low levels of social interaction have fared especially poorly. And women, of course, score consistently higher on emotional and social intelligence – so they're going to score the jobs that are being created in the future. Scott, the guys are getting whacked on all sides here. So, um, for starters, if they um, if they're part of a single parent family, they're going to perform worse at school and in jobs. And there's more single parent families, and Women don't want guys who aren't at least as well-educated or as intelligent as they are or as successful as they are. And the new jobs that are being created in the new economy, Scott, are ones that require social intelligence, and they're going to be more suited to women than they are to men. So while guys have got the advantage at the moment, all of these factors are adding up to a grim future for blokes. It is. Does
2: look that way, doesn't it? So. <laughs> it does. <laughs> God, Scott. So, so you and I had better you, you and I had better get out of the workforce before too long.
1: <laughs> so many things that we look at, Scott, are thinking, Oh look, it doesn't matter to you and me because 'cause we're old, you know, we're that old now, we'll be you know, we'll be gone and out of it by the time these issues really become important. But what's the world gonna be like in thirty or forty years? So yeah, it's gonna be going to be tough for guys so when you know in the cultural identity argument when you know you're a privileged white male in a position of power well the counter argument to that is well actually the way things are going um it's not actually privileged to, to be male and um not actually suited to the jobs that are coming onto the market and really suffer from single parent family situations. So, all, so, boo-hoo-hoo, you know, I'm lacking privilege as well. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't had right-wing Tony on the podcast for a while. So here's a little bit of right-wing Tony from episode 91 as I talk about the story of Father Brown. (laughs) Okay. Final article. This, dear listener, is a long one if you, if you end up reading this one, but, uh, On the topic of of tolerance and forgiveness, and we hear a lot about tolerance and and people claiming to be tolerant. And this is a really interesting article that says that perhaps people aren't that tolerant, it's just that they don't care. So um, a a couple of different stories here. And bear with me. Um, One was... uh, in Chesterton's The Secret of Father Brown. And basically it told the story of a nobleman who killed his good-for-nothing brother. And he disappeared and then came back and the town was prepared to forgive him. And the local priest said, well, I want to see genuine remorse before we forgive this guy. And the townspeople were, well, you were just a very intolerant sort of character. Well, you know, come on, forgive and forget. Anyway, what they then discovered was instead of the really nice brother having killed the good-for-nothing brother, in fact, it was the good-for-nothing brother who had killed the nice brother and had assumed his identity. And the town was in uproar and refused to forgive this guy. And meanwhile, the priest took the same view. Well, if he shows true remorse and is sorry for what he did, then, you know, I'm prepared to forgive him. And that sort of illustrates that in the first case, the people weren't really forgiving anything because they just didn't see anything to forgive. They were quite happy with the situation, the loss of the good-for-nothing brother. And uh, under the guise of tolerance, they said they were tolerant, but in fact, uh, they just didn't care. Happens a lot in our current society, right-wing Tony, where people claim Oh, I'm very tolerant of, of gay people and of marriage equality and uh, all these other issues. When in fact, they just don't care at all. It doesn't, doesn't mean. Doesn't touch them. Doesn't touch yeah, them. It has no they, bearing no. to them.
3: It offers no threat to them mm. or their family. And so they have no skin in the game. Mm. So they can uh, let it slide.
1: Mm. So uh, this article comes from a blog called slate star codex it's a very um well subscribed blog and has been going for a long time and this blogger he can remember at one stage when osama bin laden was killed and he made a comment which wasn't isn't it great that osama's dead but it was a kind of well thank god that saga's all over and a lot of people on his blog said made comments oh you shouldn't be celebrating the death of a man like that's Terrible thing. We should be beyond that. And at the time, he thought, "Oh, gee, maybe I've been a bit harsh. Like, gosh, people are so tolerant. You know, they're more tolerant than I am." And then, not long afterwards, um, his following, by the way, was largely left wingers. So you probably haven't subscribed to that. No, I missed that one. <laughs> yeah. A short while later. Might have been a mess. <laughs> <laughs> a short while later. Maybe a long while later, Margaret Thatcher died. The very same people, a saintly who, woman, uh, <laughs> the very same people who said, "Oh, you know, you shouldn't celebrate the death of Osama bin Laden," were literally dancing in the streets on his blog page, mm. "Ding dong, the witch is dead," and celebrating her death and applauding it. And and it just sort of struck him: this is one of those situations where so-called tolerance isn't tolerance at all. No.
3: I, I, my per- personal view is that the left probably are the most intolerant group mm. that you could come across. Um, in one of your recent podcasts, you talked about Hassan Ali not being able to come here because of um, clearly intolerance that was offered to her. And you see it around the planet. Um, certain professors aren't allowed to give talks at universities or... They're hounded out or screamed down, and Israel's a good example. If anyone Jewish happens to turn up, the hate brigades are out in full strength. Yet these are supposed to be centres of learning and tolerance, for that matter. And you go to university, arguably, for an exchange of ideas, but they're only interested in pursuing their own ideas. But in a lot of ways, I don't sort of think much of this is new. It may just not have been written about before. I had a favourite poet when I was young and it was William Butler Yeats and in one of his poems might have been Easter 1916, I can't remember which one, but he talked about the bad being full of passionate intensity while the good were basically, and he used a phrase like a sleep at the wheel, but it was Mm. was more elegant than that.
1: Mm. Dear listener, in a bit of post-production editing, I'll just uh, refer back to that poem. It was The Second Coming by Yeats and the most famous lines of which are, Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Uh, so you're spot on with the Ayaan Alley. alley. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I was going to head with this, mm-hmm. because the... Um, as we mentioned in the last podcast, the vitriol that mm. was levied at her by mm. this group of women—of th- women—had mm. you said to them, "Do you consider yourselves to be tolerant people in yes, relation to, totally to, to to gays and mm. apostates and everything mm. else?" They would have said, "Oh yes, yes, yes." Mm. But there were issues that, to a large extent, they didn't care. Mm. Uh, on ayan Hersey Ali, who was directly mm. their enemy, they well, really she was cared.
3: showing them up.
1: Mm. For
3: their hypocrisy, like that they can stand by and see young girls genitally mutilated. Mm. They can see young girls married to men that are decades older than them. They can see a crazy regime where the divorce laws favour men and don't favour women, Mm. where men can easily divorce a woman and a woman can't easily divorce a man. They live. In a, well, they would happily like to live in a, a system of Sharia law where a woman's evidence is worth half that of a man's, where in an intestacy uh, situation where someone's died, where the woman gets less than a man. Hersi Ali is showing them up. They're not feminists at all.
1: Mm.
3: They have sold out a long time ago in mm. terms of like we all know what's wrong. Mm. in terms of how people treat women and we need to stand up for women and make sure that they're not oppressed and that if a woman's being beaten in any situation or or under extreme duress that that everyone men and women stand up for those people but the this group of women weren't feminists far from it Mm. and they're apologists for a shameful situation
1: Mm. Mm. very good right wing tony on that moment our lights have returned from the beach we will conclude. Regular listeners would know that I have an issue with private schools, and Scott and I and the 12th man have ranted over private schools over many episodes, and we've got a little clip from episode 95 with a typical example of one of our rantings. When you're discussing this around the water cooler, dear listener, with your friends, and perhaps putting forward the iron fist view that there should be even further cuts and people say, oh, you can't do that... (laughs) Suggest to uh, the protagonist that, well, maybe if we just, res- you know, return to the way things were in the good old good old days, how would that be? And if they agree with you, say, great, because prior to 1960, the federal government didn't give any money to private mm. schools. And it was only in the, at the end of the uh, Menzies era that it actually came about. So from 1870 to 1962... There was no funding of private schools at all. And, in fact, uh, it all came about, you know, uh, because of a a nun in a Catholic school at Goldburn who had a dodgy toilet block and the authorities wanted to close her down. And she, uh, she not only closed her school but six others, which caused an immediate crisis. And that's what eventually helped trigger this whole mess we're in now. So, Scott... When we talk about miracles in the Catholic Church and, you know, Mother Teresa and Mary MacKillop and that, here's a miracle. Mother Celestine of the Sisters of Mercy back in 1960, she pulled off a miracle. She turned a toilet block into a gold mine, in my opinion, mm. single-handedly. If they're, if, you know, if they're creating saints in the Catholic Church, she should be at the top of their list. Exactly. Mm. You know, and then you, you come down on this
2: Guardian article down the bottom there. It says the cost saving argument has always been overstated, but has well and truly passed its use by date. If the Goulburn scenario was repeated today, now the Goulburn scenario was what you were just referring to. Oh. That's when they closed the schools and everyone had to go and file into the government schools. Mm. If the, if the Goulburn scenario was repeated today, it would now cost only 1% more to educate all of Goulburn's Catholic school students in government schools. Ah. If economies of scale were factored in, it would cost
1: even less. Almost certainly governments would end up ahead. Oh, ah, That's good. The best part of that uh, little exchange was that it prompted the input of one of our favourites in the show, uh, Landon Hardbottom, was moved to respond as a result of, of what we had to say.
0: I've just listened to your podcast about private schools, and I must say I'm appalled. If we don't continue to fund private schools, we won't have an audience for the ballet or for the opera. I mean, who will play polo and rugby? Where would we be without rugby? What are you thinking, man?
1: Next up are a couple of clips from episode 97, which was the 24th of May 2017. I like this one as a a line that I'll probably say in the future. Um, This article says, um, at one of the premieres of his landmark Holocaust documentary, Shoah, the filmmaker, um, of the Holocaust documentary was called Shoah, 1985. The filmmaker Claude Landsman was challenged by a member of the audience, a woman who identified herself as a Holocaust survivor. Landsman listened politely as the woman recounted her harrowing personal account of the Holocaust to make the point that the film failed to fully represent the recollections of survivors. When she finished, Landsman waited a bit and then said, Madam, you are an experience, but not an argument. It's a good line. It happens all the time, Scott, where people say, Well, this is what happened to me. And, well, that is your experience, but it's not an argument. Um, mm. Article goes on to say During the 80s and 90s a shift occurred in culture Personal experience and testimony Especially of suffering and oppression Began to challenge the primacy of argument <laughs> People are talking about impeachment, Scott Yeah, so and that's little... really
2: surprising how easy it is to impeach him
1: mm, Well, yeah, yeah. a little 101, dear listener What's it take to impeach a president? i link to an article here, gives the details. So impeach has its roots in the Latin word for being caught. Uh, it allows the legislature to indict or charge an official with criminal activity, and that official will be removed from office if convicted. So this article has got uh, five questions to answer about impeachment, and the first is what sort of crime can lead to impeachment? And the answer is the um, Constitution says of the US, uh, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanours, which can be pretty broad. Uh, Bill Clinton faced um, impeachment for perjury, which was lying under oath, and for obstruction of yeah. justice. Uh, it didn't go all the way. Um <coughs> And Gerald Ford put it uh, bluntly when he described an impeachable offence as whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers to be at a given moment in history. So, mm. uh, if the House of Reps is against you, um, a Mr- uh, any sort of misdemeanor could be. So, um, so it doesn't have to be super <coughs> serious. Perjury and obstruction of justice. I mean, not good, but not not treason. Uh, how does it work? Um, so there's a th- a thing called the House Judiciary Committee. So they would vote on the articles of impeachment. If approved, then it's brought before the uh, the full House. Uh, if the House um, passes the impeachment, then it goes to the Senate for trial. And a trial is conducted much like a criminal case, with witnesses called but it needs a two-thirds majority of the Senate to convict and remove the individual in question. So two presidents, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, have been impeached by the House, but both avoided being removed from office by the Senate. Um, And the Supreme Court doesn't do anything except the Chief Justice actually sits in the Senate and um, presides over the trial. So, So it's a bit of a numbers game, Scott. Uh, with the Republicans having the numbers in the House and the Senate, some would say unlikely to get a two-thirds majority in the Senate to impeach Trump. But...
2: Well, if he continues on the way he is, you know, they've hmm.
1: got midterms coming up. You know, ultimately, okay, from the Republicans, if they hate Trump... um. Get rid of him and then your vice president becomes president. You're still, it's yeah. like the Republicans still have power. So, um, given that he's a true outsider, um, I would have thought they wouldn't think too hard about just, if necessary, uh, giving Trump the boot to get rid of him. And then they can put Pence in and away they go. The Republicans still in charge.
2: Well, that's what I was thinking. I thought to myself, well, Pence is actually the more popular Republican, so I would have thought that there'd be no problem there. But anyway.
1: Mm. So um, so if you annoys enough Republicans, maybe the numbers won't matter so much. Um, let me see here. Uh, well, that's, that one basically discussed that topic, number three. Um, other people can be impeached. Um, judges can be. Um, some other high officials can be. And, yes, if he's removed, then the vice president um, would be the next one in line. And if the vice president was also implicated in the president's crime, then um, uh, who would it Speaker be? Speaker of the House. Speaker of the House. Bit of a brouhaha has happened Um in relation to a lady who wrote an article called In Defence of Transracialism. And what she was making the point was that we've mentioned previously in the podcast a lady called Rachel Dolezal, who um, had been the head of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. And um, she basically... uh, was telling people that she was a person of colour. And uh, she had to resign from her post after it was revealed though that although she had been presenting as a black woman for some years, her parents were, in fact, white. And uh, she was subject to ridicule and condemnation for misrepresenting her true race. So that is Exhibit A, Rachel Dolezal, Exhibit B in this saga is Caitlyn Jenner. And Caitlyn Jenner, uh, formerly Bruce Jenner, um, decided to change sex, famously or infamously, and Mm. was applauded for doing so. And this article by, um, oh, what's her name here? I have to get the name. Um, I'll come back to it in a moment. Yes, Tuval makes the point.
2: Rebecca Tuval.
1: Thank you. um, A scholarly article of about 12 pages making the point, well, what's the difference here? We've got um, uh, Caitlyn Jenner identifying now as a woman and changing from a man to a woman and being applauded for it. And we've got Mm. Rachel Dalzell who... Identifies as a black person and is changing from a white person to a black person. Why the double standard, and and just gave you know various reasons as to why that that was uh, the, the similarities between them and addressed you know uh, the the counter arguments and put forward a very good argument to say well if you can accept that people can identify as a different gender to what they were born, then you probably have to um, agree that somebody could identify as a different race and take on a different race if that's what they want to do and a compelling argument, which all sounds yeah. good and you know and she uh, her conclusion was basically um, you know good on both women if that's what they want to do. they should be allowed to was kind of the tone of of the article well. The feminazis just went ballistic <laughs> against this woman. They just went crazy and said you can't say that. What Caitlin Jenner was perfectly fine, but it is not fine to adopt another race and vitriol and insult and just fur flying left, right and centre um so much so that this other article that we've linked to um, from the Philosophical Salon where this lady said, you know, I've had to come in and jump to the to um, to the defence of Rebecca Tuval. And she herself has then been subjected to an enormous uh, level of insult and outrage. It goes on and on and on. But you get the general picture, dear listener. That, that this reminded me, Scott. Of the Ayan Hersey Ali situation that we had a couple of months ago where she wanted yeah. to come to Australia and uh mm. the, you know, quote feminist Muslims just went rabid against her and accused her of all sorts of things and insults. And mm. there's no doubt about the left. And once when she was really Yeah. When it gets intolerant of somebody, well, well you know, they're all uh, sweetness. You know, we're so tolerant and inclusive until you do see something that they really disagree with. <laughs> <Yeah>. And then, <laughs> really disagree with, yeah.
2: My goodness. Like,
1: at this stage, I calculate that we're only up to the 48-minute mark, and I'm fearful I won't get an hour and a half of podcasting done here. We might, we might be stopping at the one-hour mark. And I'm fearful because I've previously received a message about uh, just this sort of thing. Fist,
0: glove, twelfth man, hard bottom here. Your last episode was only one hour long and not the one hour and 30 minutes I've become accustomed to. You owe me 33 cents and if I don't get it, I'll be sending some rather large chaps around there to perform their own kind of knee surgery on you.
1: Hopefully, Landon remembers my opening statement where I said that I would not be charging patrons for this episode and hopefully uh, his heavies have not been engaged as yet. Here's another clip from episode 103. Scott, we've got to move along. I'm going to skip a few articles and jump straight to the end with another great article from Kenan Malik in his Pandemonium uh, blog, How Culture Came to Appropriate Race. Um... He refers to an incident. Uh, last week, Sandeep and Rena Manda were denied the chance to adopt a child. It was not because their local council, Windsor and Maidenhead, thought that they would not have provided a loving family home, nor because there were no children to adopt. It is rather that the Manders are of Indian Sikh heritage, though both born in Britain, and the only children needing adoption were white. Scott, first thoughts: Indian Sikh couple want to adopt children. Only children available for adoption are white, and the council says, "Well, oh, we can't do that. We can't have Indians adopting white kids." Well, see, that's just
2: madness, isn't it?
1: It's incredibly racist. It's terrible. It's, it's absolutely disgusting that they would think that. Mm. But Scott, put the shoe on the other foot, and if you've got black family, uh, sorry a white family wanting to adopt black children, do you think they should be able to? Of course they should. Hmm. Currently in Australia um, with our Aboriginal children, there is a strong, strong emphasis that they first must be, in terms of foster care, looked after by Aboriginal families, so an active discrimination to put Aboriginal kids with Aboriginal families. And I'm pretty sure that the adoption runs the same way, Scott. So...
2: Yeah, and you know, I understand why they're gone that way because they're trying to prevent another stolen generation. Blah 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 blah. Mm. But it's racist on the faces, face of it. You know, it's really disgusting that they would do that. Mm.
1: Yep. And yeah. so this is um, this is the point that the Kenan Malik article is saying is that um, it's a perspective that far from challenging racism, simply appropriates the core of the racial thinking. So this is the idea of minority groups who would say they don't want their black children raised by white families because that would be denying them their black identity. And this is a common thought around the world. And it's, it's adopting the racism they've been fighting against, or their their ancestors have, for generations and mm. applying it themselves. It's it's um, just a mirror image of that racism. So he makes the point that uh, in the post-war... That's really quite offensive. Mm, yeah. In the post-World War, in the post-war world, uh, the concept of race has disintegrated um, and it's been replaced not with the language of biology, but of culture. And there's a right-wing and a left-wing form of this. So uh, the right, or the new right, which emerged in the 70s, looked uh, to culture as a replacement for race. So um, uh, instead of saying, we don't want those black people coming into our country, they would say, we want to protect our culture as a means of, um, uh, you know, achieving the same end but done through the language of culture. And from the left, uh, culture has been a key component in its version of identity politics. Uh, different minority groups are seen as possessing distinct cultures, identities and ways of thinking um, and, and they defend those identities which is done in a mirror image of the new rights argument. So, um, on both right and left, many now view cultures as fixed, bounded entities, each the property only of certain people. Once culture was seen as providing the tools with which to open up and transform the world, today, many regard it as more of a protective wall to shield its members and keep out unwanted visitors. The immigration debate, once rooted in racial antipathy, fear of the yellow peril of the black invasion, today it's more often expressed in terms of cultural differences. Um, And he goes on. Back on the 19th of July 2017, which was episode 105, I did a solo show where I just ranted to myself and to you directly. So in order to make up the hour and a half that Liam might possibly demand, I'll throw in a bit of my solo rant for you, and we'll probably finish up after that. What we had earlier on, before I diverged on crazy, crazy religious stories, was trying to just outline, dear listener, the genuine takeover of our political parties by the religious groups, and we really are facing a Tea Party-like takeover. What, what, the, what the Tea Party did to the Republican Party is happening as we speak to the Liberal Party in Australia. We've, we've just seen enough examples of it to to know that's the case. And you can just see by the type of people who are either education ministers or opposition education ministers, you know, shadow education ministers, as as to what's happening. These are not normal everyday Australian values that these people are holding. Um so um what I wanted to do was just a quick um you know, I should have done this as maybe as part of episode one hundred as part of our anniversary of where we'd got to on this podcast. But A quick rehash of some key concepts and and why I'm just so rabid about this stuff, but surely for our society to flourish, we must cooperate. The membership of this society has to cooperate. Diversity is great. It encourages fresh ideas, but squabbling and fighting are, are clearly counterproductive for a flourishing society, and religions are just creating unnecessary tension and conflict, they're creating in-groups and out-groups for no benefit. So that would be okay if they just stuck to themselves. So, all right, if you want to be against marriage equality, abortions, assisted dying, drug legalisation, it would all be fine if they just took the view, well, they're against marriage equality, so they're, you know, a Christian man is not going to marry another man, but they insist on imposing these beliefs on the rest of us. This is where the issue is. Um, so what's the best way of imposing their views on the rest of us is taking over political parties. And, and what's happening is they're finding a real home in the right wing. Of, of the Liberal Party in particular and you might say to yourself why is it that why is it that this sort of movement is is going for the right wing of the Liberal Party and basically the answer is they're just following the American template here so um, uh, this this American evangelical movement they're they're believers in a thing called dominionism and that is that Christians must take dominion over society and seize control uh, and that only Christians are worthy of of running our government so you know I'm I'm, I'm, I'm wary of sounding like a conspiracy theorist but at least on the education issue alone that I just outlined before, you can bear with me that there might be some smoke here where I'm calling fire based on the characters that were described there. So bear with me. With this dominiumism, two parts to it. One is very conservative values in terms of the issues we've talked about a lot, marriage equality, abortion, assisted dying, blah, blah, blah. The other part about them is that they're really into an economic neoliberalism. So small government, small tax uh, is is a big part of, of that agenda and that's why they fit in well with, say, the right wing of the Liberal Party because that's a shared value. Um, but when you think about it, in terms of Christianity and economic neoliberalism, there shouldn't be any uh, similarities between the two. I mean, these people, every second of breath is about their relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you, you know, for the moment, let's just accept that Jesus actually was a true historical figure. I won't accept he was the son of God for a moment, but I'm, you know, I'm strongly questioning whether he even existed as a historical figure. But anyway, putting all that aside, Jesus Christ. I mean, blessed are the meek and the poor. You know, that sort of um, you know, going into the temple and throwing out the money changes. The whole story of Jesus was about, you know, if Jesus Christ was alive today, he would be a member of the left wing of the Labor Party. I mean, can anyone deny that? Yet, yet These people who claim to be Jesus followers are uh, happily ensconced in the right wing of conservative politics. And the excuse they use uh, as part of this dominionism is that you know, Christians have to take dominion over society and seize control. Well, you can only do that if you've got money. I mean, money is control. So it's okay to, to make money because that is a tool that you use to gain control. And the other part of that is this sort of prosperity gospel that they preach, um, where they say that wealth and worldly success are signs of God's favour. So if you're doing well in this life, big house, big car, lots of money, that's a sign of God's favour. So don't be ashamed of it, and that's all good. Keep earning as much money as you like. So that's how they get around the uh, what you would normally think of as Christian values to include this sort of neoliberalism concept. So, so they've found a home in in the right wing. And that's where that sort of group diverge with traditional churches. Um, So, and that's um, that's why Donald Trump could get support from these evangelical groups in the USA. I mean, ordinarily, there is nothing in common. You know, the normal story of Jesus Christ and Donald Trump are so far apart They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Yet the evangelicals supported Trump and that sort of prosperity gospel story allowed them to do that. So we, dear listener, follow the USA in so many ways culturally. Um, uh, Fortunately, we avoided the gun problem and, you know, kudos to John Howard, that is, you know, that and I'm okay with the GST, the the gun thing, well done. That was a great thing that was achieved and it was only in the last day or two we had that terrible story in America where an Australian woman uh, called the police, went out in her pyjamas, was talking to the policeman and the policeman uh, in the passenger seat, I think, shot her dead and Who knows why, but it's seemingly no good reason. It's just a society that's out of control. Um, So anyway, we've avoided the gun problem of the USA, and we don't have uh, the same race problems that the USA has. Um, But we've got to be very careful that we avoid the inequality problem that is a blight on the USA. And where I'm heading to, dear listener, with all this is, you know, you mightn't care about abortion law, uh, marriage equality, assisted dying, drug legalisation. They might be so far down your radar you don't care. But uh, the neoliberalism uh, is one that should concern you, unless you're extremely wealthy and um, immune from... Um, potential economic shocks. You don't want to be a poor person in America or a lower middle class, if there's anyone left of that category. It's a dangerous spot to be, and we don't need that sort of um, sort of society becoming uh, the norm here in Australia. So I'm. Tr- what I'm suggesting is not only are these evangelicals importing a conservative agenda on social issues, they're importing a neoliberalism on economic issues, which is just as dangerous. There's lots of reasons to be worried. So just to give you an idea of um, of where the world's going with things in terms of economics and class and uh, it's, it's a scary picture, uh, dear listener. So a couple of things I always uh, refer to. Um, 1960s, a Detroit auto worker uh, was earning the equivalent in today's money of $60,000. Uh, you know, that's a person who hasn't gone to university, but is just turning up every day and doing their job. Uh, the equivalent today in the USA is a Walmart worker who, for the same hours, is lucky to get in today's money $20,000 and they have no health care. That's a full time job. When, when they send financial planners into Walmart to talk to the employees to give them advice, they assume that these people all have a second job because it's impossible to live without a second job. So many people in America have two or three jobs to keep going. When you're only paid $7.50 an hour, that's what happens. So uh you know, the American dream of of working hard, getting ahead and being successful is actually a myth. That that's called social mobility, the ability of people to move upwards through the social scales from lower to middle and from middle to high. I, in America now, it's got some of the worst social mobility amongst developed countries. That's, that's what economic neoliberalism has resulted in. We can't fall into that same trap. And uh, I came across... um This little audio clip from Yanis Forifakis, who was teaching economics in Australia and ended up being the finance minister in Greece during all their um, turbulent times. And he's a really captivating speaker. So I'm going to play uh, a bit of a clip from Yanis now.
4: Well, the technological revolution that uh, is taking place uh, is uh, threatening us with uh, a unique phenomenon. So far, every time we had technological innovations, uh, they destroyed many jobs, but they created more jobs than they destroyed. This is the Schubertarian process, uh, which uh, overall had net winners, uh, even though there were many losers. Now there is the first uh, juncture since the 18th century when it is highly likely that technological innovation is going to destroy a lot more uh, positions for wage labor than it will create, Uh, which uh, I think puts us uh, on a course of a major dilemma. There will be a juncture, and we'll have to choose, and we'll have to choose politically and democratically uh, between a world in which the concentration of ownership over the newfangled means of production is going to... Lead to a stagnating capitalism with intense inequality and huge quantity of income for a decreasing, shrinking percentage of the population uh, that lives behind uh, um, barriers, fences, electrified fences in uh, policed, privately policed communities and the rest uh, in a cesspool of volatility, uncertainty, and social misery. Let me put it in science fiction terms. Um, this is a parable that I think is quite instructive and I use it often. Um, it's no doubt we're moving towards a science fiction world that will become non-fiction. But remember, science fiction has two possibilities. One is a Star Trek society where we're all equals. And we all benefit from the technology. We don't have to work. There's a hole in the wall. You go to it. You you get anything you want from it. Nobody has been exploited. Nobody has worked for it. The machines do it for you. So the machinery, the technology, is humanity's servant. And then we can sit around and explore the universe. We can have philosophical discussions about the meaning of life, which is wonderful, right? That is a good scenario. But then there's the matrix, too, where the artifacts that we have created enslave us and then we become caught up in an illusion of freedom rather than the real thing. Whether we go to a Star Star Trek or to a matrix-like outcome as a result of technological innovation is the result of politics. And if it's not democratic, it will be a matrix-like world. Dear listener, if if the evangelicals get...
1: not, Not only are they importing conservative social values... They're importing neoliberalism, and their ideal is the Matrix, not the Star Trek, I can assure you. So that that's the long term. Do you want a Star Trek or a Matrix-type world? And in the short term, one of the comparisons could be, you know, do you want a USA situation or do you want a Canada-like situation? I mean, the two countries side by side on the same continent, yet remarkably different in in lifestyles. And I've got a link here to an article titled Why Canada is Able to Do Things Better. And it's from a Canadian who describes here uh, our annual family trips to my grandparents' Florida condo in the 70s and 80s offered glimpses of a better life. Uh, In those days, Canadians saw themselves as Americans' poor cousins. Uh, Everything was just big and beautiful and bold in America. But the article says that decades later, uh, a different impression has emerged, and it's the decay of America. So uh, this writer, who is Jonathan Kaye, says... You know, there hasn't been a new major airport constructed in the United States since 1995. Friends of mine who were there recently in California just were shocked by the state of, of the roads and the highway system. You can just tell it's dilapidated and falling apart because money isn't spent on it. Um, the uh, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon, recently said, about the USA. We are unable to build bridges. We're unable to build airports. Our inner city school kids are not graduating. Um, It's almost embarrassing being an American citizen. And uh, there's all sorts of reasons why, but the basic answer is that the American public sector just doesn't have the money required to pay for the stuff it needs to do taxes are too low so the oecd ranks its members by overall tax burden united states comes in at fourth to last tax burden 25.9 percent, substantially less than the oecd average 34.2 so As a comparison between the USA and Canada, the writer says it's quite simple. When Canadian governments need more money, they raise taxes. Canadians are not thrilled when this happened, but as Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. put it, taxes are the price paid for civilised society. Uh, Among the American right, by contrast, the conversation about taxes often seems infused with magical thinking. Specifically, it is imagined that even severe and abruptly implemented tax cuts will serve to actually increase government revenue. This is this whole supply side theory. It doesn't work. It's been debunked. So a nice article because uh, he makes the point that that life in Canada, for him, he pays 10% more tax than the US, but... Uh, they've got universal health care, there's world-class public schools, there's a social safety net, there's infrastructure. Like, these are things worth paying for. And, dear listener, my point is, the evangelicals, they're not just screwing over our education system. They're they are going to start on our welfare system. Um, not so long ago, it was uh, earlier in July, uh, The Daily Telegraph, part of the Murdoch stable of papers, put out a future shock front page, which uh, was meant to be life 100 days after the election of a shortened Labor government. So um, it was sort of a fake uh, front page, pretending to be 100 years down the track under a Labor front government. Indic- and sort of stating what was happening in the world. And it was doing it on the basis of these are terrible things that we're, we're, are now happening, you know. Woe was us for having a, a shortened Labor government. But, but these are the things they listed. So included on the list of alleged indicators of looming ALP dystopia was the fact that big businesses wouldn't get a tax cut under Labor, penalty rate cuts for workers would be overturned, The top marginal rate for personal tax would be higher. Schools would get more money. We would be more ambitious on renewable energy. Banks would be subject to a royal commission and same-sex marriage would be legalised. The Daily Telegraph was putting that forward as all bad things, as probably most readers would have said good when looking at it. So it's just an example of how the Murdoch press is out of touch with what's really needed here. And still on this, we've got um, an article from Ross Gittins uh, in the Brisbane Times, July 8th. He's a very well-known economist, and um, he's quoting Ben Bernanke, former chairman of the US Federal Reserve, who gave a speech titled, When Growth is Not Enough. And so this is a former chairman of the Federal Reserve In that speech, the first thing he mentions or says as a worrying trend is stagnant stagnant earnings for the median worker. Talking about the US here, since 1979, real output per person in the USA has expanded by a cumulative 80%. And yet during that time, median weekly earnings of full-time employees full-time workers have grown by only 7% in real terms. And almost all that growth is explained by higher wages and working hours for women. For male workers, real, medium, weekly earnings have actually declined since 1979. Um, I mentioned earlier about the ability to move through the social classes. Well, that's declined in America and again, from this uh, Ben Bernanke speech, 90% of Americans born in the 1940s would eventually earn more than their parents did. But only 50% of those born in the 1980s would end up earning more than their parents. So it used to be the norm overwhelmingly. Nine out of 10 would end up earning more than their parents. Now down to 50 Fifty-fifty. A couple of other things he mentioned as worrying trends in the US: increasing social dysfunction, and uh, political alienation, distrust of institutions, etc. So there's that. So that's big problems coming from the right wing. And the answer or the next question is, well, what is the left doing in the world in response to this? And there's an article here um, which I really, uh, very thought-provoking, is basically saying or suggesting that it's in in America's case, it's almost too late. And, you know, dear listener, this is an Australian podcast and I know I'm rabbiting on about America, but I'm doing it because we follow them in so many ways and the influences from them are, are here, as I hope I've sort of indicated. So I sort of show these as, as possible future scenarios for us. And we've just got to make sure that we head for the Star Trek version and not the Matrix version is um, where we've got to go to here. Think of it that way. So, uh, at the risk of being even more US centric in this particular episode, let's have a look at this particular article, which says. Um, so, I am talking about here. You know what? What's the left doing? What can it do? And this article is titled "On Rural America: Understanding Isn't the Problem." Uh, in the aftermath of the election of Donald Trump, a common theme was that Democrats failed to understand white working class flyover America. And by flyover, they mean um, people never actually travel by road through these states. They just fly over from, it's just nothing to see there flyover states. They're the poor, traditionally Republican states. Um, in the, um, yeah. So what this character, uh, or this person is saying in this article, is um, uh, that, I'm trying to say he or she, but it's not quite clear to me if it's he or she. Do with me for a second. Let's see if I can see a name here. I can't even see a name in the article. So my apologies. I'm just going to assume a she, and see what happens. Um. She grew up in rural Christian white America in a flyover state. And um, actually, I know it's a guy because he speaks later on about dating girls. So it's a guy. Um, He says, the real problem isn't East Coast elites not understanding or caring about rural America. The real problem is rural America doesn't understand the causes of their own situation and fears, and they have no interest in finding out. They don't want to know why they feel the way they do or why they are struggling because they don't want to admit it is in large part because of the choices they've made and horrible things they've allowed themselves to believe. Sometimes when I think of these, dear listener, with this sort of rural America flyover states, I kind of think of Pauline Hansen supporters to a large extent just sort of come to mind as the... Classic equivalent in our Australian scenario. Anyway, he goes on. I grew up in rural Christian white America. The problem isn't that I don't understand these people. The problem is they don't understand themselves. Uh, White America, in white America, the Christian God is king, figuratively and literally. Systems built on a fundamentalist framework are not conducive for introspection, questioning, learning, or change. Uh, He says here, I've had hundreds of discussions with rural white Americans, and whenever I present them any information that will contradict their entrenched beliefs, no matter how sound, how unquestionable, how obvious, they will not ever entertain the possibility it might be true. Their refusal is a result of the nature of their fundamentalist belief system and the fact I'm the enemy because I'm an educated liberal. At some point during the discussion that's your education Tolkien, will be said derogatorily as a genuine as a general a general dismissal of everything I've said. They truly believe this is a legitimate response because to them education is not to be trusted. Another thing about them is they're very susceptible to propaganda. Rural Christians, white Americans, have let in anti-intellectual, anti-science, bigoted racists into their system as experts because they tell them what they want to hear, because they sell themselves as being one of them. The truth is that none of these people gives a rat's ass about rural Christians except how they can exploit them for attention and money. Um, since facts and reality don't matter, nothing you can say to them will alter their beliefs. President Obama was born in Kenya, is a secret member of the Muslim Brotherhood who hates white Americans and is going to take away their guns. I mean, they just see that as a fact. And the writer says, do you know what does change the beliefs of fundamentalists sometimes? When something becomes personal... Many a fundamentalist have changed their minds about the LGBTQ community once their loved ones starts coming out of the closet. Many have not. But those who have done so because of their personal experience come in direct conflict with what they believe. I agree with that. I think this uh, it's definitely been apparent here in Australia. I would have thought that when people's sons and daughters and nieces and nephews and grandchildren come out as being gay, then um, hardline Christian views start to wither away. And I think the same will happen with voluntary euthanasia. If people see enough painful experiences of death, it will become personal. But uh, there's lots of issues in our society that you just can't make personal you can't reduce to a personal level and the article basically says it's really seems unlikely that there are ways to change the minds of those people. Excuse me. So um, we haven't reached that point yet. We've got a bunch of guys in charge of our education system who are heading us in that direction. Uh So we've got time and we can do things. What can the left do? What is it doing? What is the left doing in Australia and worldwide? Well, unfortunately, at this very moment, it seems to me that the left is just fucking around with identity politics and ignoring the real issues that are affecting the constituents that they should be looking after. Um I've been following Ray Halpin, who made earth that comment on that um on the Kenan Malik blog, and he writes some interesting things actually, and he made the point that um how many times has The Guardian, which is a infamous left-wing newspaper, published a story about working class difficulties over the past few years only to see it attract virtually no commentary or reaction of any kind whatsoever from a readership that generally can't keep its mouth shut about anything. The silence in itself is proof of the extent and strength of class bigotry on the left, where identity politics completely dominates attitudes and discourse. I think he's dead right. If you were on a Guardian article and were just talking about issues of of the difficulties for working-class people caused by globalisation or or things like that, you'll get virtually no comments, but if you touch on the subject of identity politics, well, it'll be on for young and old. The right wing is happy with the identity politics debate because it doesn't cost them anything and it allows virtue signalling and a sort of a painless um, environment. So, this is an article from The Chronicle by Walter Michaels, <clears throat> uh, basically saying that cultural appropriation is a distraction from, <clears throat> uh, is a distraction from the real menace of inequality. Uh, the students at elite American universities come overwhelmingly from the upper class. The job of the faculty is to help them rise within, or at least not fall out of, that class. And one of the particular responsibilities of the humanities and social science faculty is to help make sure that the students who take our courses come out not just richer than everyone else, but also more virtuous. Identity crimes, both the phantasmatic phantasmatic ones like culture theft. I think what he means there is just phony. So the phony ones like culture theft and the real ones like racism and sexism, these identity crimes are perfect for this purpose. Since unlike the downward redistribution of wealth, opposing them leaves the class structure intact. Thus, for example, one can completely support the actions of Middlebury College students in demonstrating their opposition to to what they call Charles Murray's white nationalism, uh, while at the same time noting that it's not white nationalism that's making poor people poorer, it's capitalism. Um, The problem is not that rich people can't feel poor people's pain. You don't have to be the victim of inequality to want to eliminate inequality. And the problem is not that the story of the poor doesn't belong to the rich. The relevant question about our stories is not whether they reveal someone's privilege, but whether they're true. The problem is that the whole area of cultural identity is incoherent and the dramas of appropriation it makes possible provide an increasingly economically stratified society with a model of social justice that addresses everything except that economic stratification. In other words, the left is just talking identity politics without dealing with poverty and the right is happy to deal with identity politics because it doesn't cost anything. Our friend Yasmin Abdul-Majid, she's come in for criticism from all quarters over different things, what she said. But the the thing that she should be most criticised for is her you know her obsession with with identity politics I mean complaining that Nigerian women can't tell their story if a white fiction writer from Oregon tells the story that it somehow steals the story from the Nigerian woman or people wearing some prayer at a at a Mexican themed party or at culturally appropriating Mexican culture. It's such a sideshow to the real issues. And, you know, if she was truly concerned about minorities, she should be talking about poverty, inequality, social mobility, penalty rates, housing affordability, funding of government schools. that That's her crime, was bullshitting on about all these other things when real things that are affecting not only her, you know, minority group or constituency, but lots of others, that's where she should have been. That's where she could have helped people, where she had a platform on Q&A and The Drum and every other ABC program going. But instead she chose to muck around with all the sideshow issues that that are all wonderful if you're sitting around a university coffee shop discussing crap but in the real lives of people it makes no difference at all that that's her real crime So the problem with Abdul Majid and and people like her is they've elevated the notion of cultural identity to such a place that they've conned people into thinking that that's all there is. And it's the most important thing in their life. And they've conned people into overvaluing it. Um, An article came across my desk titled, Islamic Experts Work Towards National Religious School Curriculum to Apply Faith to Modern Australian Life. And lots of people were complaining because it was, you know, The idea of an Islamic faith curriculum being taught in our schools was the sort of issue that most people objected to. But one of the participants in this, um, she says here, uh, she said, young Muslims often find themselves questioning their identity because they don't have the answers to questions about their faith that are raised in the news. And she says that in a way as if questioning their identity is a bad thing. But I would say, good, Uh, there's nothing wrong with questioning your identity. You, You should be doing that. If your identity is who you are, what ideas you believe in, what values you hold, then yes, check them regularly. A good idea. It's not a bad thing. Further on, she says, it could make them, meaning young Muslims, Question their belonging and negatively impact the way they view their role in society and whether their contribution has value. Again, I would say questioning their belonging is a good idea. Are they integrating? Their role in society, yes. Are they having a positive role? Does their contribution have value? She goes on. It meant I could embrace my identity a lot more confidently and confirm that just because I followed the faith, it didn't conflict with being raised Australian. Dear listener, fellow atheist secularists, we just it's an it was a topic of religion which which gets converted into identity and culture. And we need to be very aware of those arguments and how they run and in the same sense that we are not afraid to pull people up on crazy religious ideology, we should also pull people up on on crazy notions of identity and culture. Speaking of the left and how it's responding to what's needed for the needy members of our society, the minorities, if you like, who are disadvantaged, Great article by Kenan Malik, and uh, I'll read some of it. Um, last week, Sandeep and Rena Mander were denied the chance to adopt a child. This is in the UK. It was not because their local council, Windsor and Maidenhead, thought they would not have provided a loving home, nor because there were no children to adopt. It's rather that the Manders are of Indian Sikh heritage, though both born in Britain, and the only children needing adoption were white. We've got a British council refusing to allow the adoption of a white kid into an Indian Sikh family. The problem runs much deeper, however, than the attitudes of the undiverse members of one local council. It speaks to a broader confusion about the relationship between race and culture, a confusion that afflicts anti-racists as much as it does racists. It is plausible the council imagines that to be white is to belong to a particular culture and that non-whites belong to other cultures. A white child can only be brought up by white parents because otherwise he or she would grow up in the wrong culture. I mean, that would be undoubtedly what the council's thinking. Um, more recently, though, the kind of attitude that seems to have swayed Windsor and Maidenhead Council has been promoted by anti racists as much as by racists. In Britain, the pushback against trans racial adoption began in the 1980s. In 1983, the Association of Black Social Workers and Allied professions gave evidence to a common select committee looking into adoption. That group condemned transracial adoption as a microcosm of the oppression of black people. They said what a black child requires above all is positive black identity. The black community could not maintain any dignity in this country if black children are taken away from their parents and reared exclusively by another race. Dear Australian listeners, does that sound familiar? That sort of thinking that we can't have black children raised by white people and vice versa, but the first one, it's, it's a perspective, as Malik says, that far from challenging racism simply appropriates the core of the racial thinking. It is a racist statement for black communities to say, I, we don't want white people looking after our black kids. I mean, that's the sort of thing that you, you know, Alabama, you know, in the 50s would have said about, we don't want white kids raised by black families and would have been considered abhorrent. Just because it's the minority saying it, doesn't make it any better. It's, it's a racist statement. People don't get it. What we're finding in the world at the moment, dear listener, is that race, the word race is being substituted with culture. Um, the new language of culture has taken both right-wing and left-wing forms. So the new right that's emerged in the 70s, explicitly looked to culture as a replacement for race. Um, every nation and people, its proponents argued, had its own culture that had to be protected against foreigners. So that's your your Pauline Hansen sort of response to immigration because originally she started with Asians and then moved on to Muslims. You know, while well, there's many good reasons to have issues with immigration – Hers seems to be, you know, rather than saying, uh, well, because they're a different race, as in they're yellow or they're black, she will refer to culture or their likes will refer to culture. So, um, you know, if the Ku Klux Klan was to reinvent itself in 2017, um, it would do so by referring to culture rather than race. So that's what the right wing is doing. Um, the left, uh, culture has become a key component of its version of identity politics. So this is Ken and Malik still. Different minority groups, whether African-Americans, Indigenous Australians, Muslims or gays, are seen as possessing distinct cultures, identities and ways of thinking. To confront racism and oppression, many argue, requires a defence of each group's distinct identities which is a mirror image of the new right argument. On both the right and the left, many now view cultures as fixed, bounded entities, each the property only of certain people. Once culture was seen as providing the tools with which to open up and transform the world, today many regard it more as a protective wall to shield its members and keep out unwanted visitors. So that is what the left and the right are doing with culture. And how does that, you know, translate into current Australian, current affairs in Australia? Well, we've just had a referendum council bring out a final report, which was released to Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And the report has called for a separate declaration of recognition of Aboriginal people outside of the Constitution, um, containing inspiring and unifying words, articulating Australia's shared history, heritage and aspirations. Um, What we've got, dear listener, is a call for some sort of body that will represent Aboriginal people that will be in our parliament that will be at a minimum consulted on legislation that has anything to do with remotely, with Aboriginal people, um, all the way up to potentially having power to veto legislation or, or some meaningful power. Who, who knows? Nobody knows where it's going to be, where its powers will start and finish. It's, it's the idea of, of a body made up of Aboriginal people representing the Aboriginal community of Australia in our parliament. And, dear listener, that nobody seems to want to point out is a racist policy. To, to single out a group and give them special privileges... Based on their race based on their bloodlines is is a racist policy and it doesn't matter that it's a minority who's had a tough time and who have been victims you, you can't give special privileges to people just based on race uh, it, it's it's fundamental it when the White people were putting down black people in Alabama because they were just black. It's a greed. It's disgusting. The same in South Africa when people were prevented from voting and didn't have full rights because they were black, just because they were black. It's dehumanising. It's illegitimate. You can't just separate people based on... The colour of their skin or their DNA. It doesn't matter whether they're part of the majority who is oppressing the minority or vice versa. You're simply appropriating a racist idea and using it for the minority. So, um, just on that constitutional matter. Linda Burney is a Labor MP and she's sort of, article here where she's talked about that um, constitutional change, but she's really annoyed that there wasn't talk about removing the race power from the Constitution. So, in 1967, we had a referendum and apparently got passed and it gave the Commonwealth power to make laws for the people of any race for whom it is deemed necessary to make special laws. So she's in favour of a body in the parliament that's aboriginally made up of Aboriginal people doing things to, for Aboriginal people and at the same time is really angry that a power in the Constitution allowing the federal government power to make laws in relation to race is still there. I don't get it. I don't get it. How can you, one on the one hand, be happy with a racist body, yet on the other hand, want to get rid of legislation that allows racist based legislation i agree let's get rid of that section we shouldn't be making policy based on race but i don't see how you can be in favor of the sort of constitutional change that they're going for so one of the issues with all of that is who are these people who are going to sit in this body who who votes for them who decides who they are Noel Pearson, is he going to be one of them? I mean, there's lots of people in the Aboriginal community who don't like him, who don't think he stands for them. This is the problem. How do you you decide who should be one of the so-called leaders of the Aboriginal community? And the other part of this is how condescending to think that all Aboriginal people think the same way about an issue. For for that group to function, they must assume that there's near huge majority opinion amongst Aboriginal people on, on certain issues. Well, how can you be sure? It's condescending and racist to think, oh, all those brown people, they all think the same way, you know, with... This is the thing with these community leaders in the UK and and here with our minority communities where these imams are self-appointed spokespeople for their community, and the assumption is that, you know, all the members of the community think the same way. We'd never say that about white people. We would never say, oh, yeah, they all think the same about this particular issue. I mean, God, my small involvement with the secular community, it's, it's hard to get... Ten people in the secular party to agree on certain aspects of secularism. You know, like that primary ethics situation in New South Wales, you know, quite big disagreement in the secular party about that. So it's it's condescending to think that this group could speak on behalf of all Aboriginal people as if they all think the same. So that's a divisive thing and it's it's a demonstration. I think, that people have lost the ability to truly look at the nuts and bolts of these ethical decisions and and go, hang on a minute, you you can't say that on one hand and on the other hand say that. You know, you can't complain about racism and then want to implement a racist policy. You know, one of the things, I guess legal training as a lawyer, when you when you look at a law, you you think about how will that apply in various circumstances and where will the law, where would that not make sense or where does it, you know, is there a situation where that law applied that way is going to be nonsensical? And people don't do that enough and it's an advantage for people who've had some legal training that they actually can look at laws and go, well... These laws are going to apply equally to the whole society. Uh, is that going to create some crazy um, scenario as, as a result? Because we need to apply these laws equally. So mentioned it before, but there's a writer called Alistair McIntyre, and he wrote a book, uh, After Virtue, in which he describes a post-apocalyptic world in which science has been outlawed and fundamental scientific knowledge has been lost. He then describes a revival where people use scientific terms but do not understand the underlying principles. In this revival period, people use expressions such as neutrino, mass, and specific gravity. But there is an element of arbitrariness and even choice, which would be very surprising to us. McIntyre argues that in today's world, the language of morality is in the same state of disorder as the language of science in his imaginary world. In 2017, we use many key expressions to describe morality, but we've lost our comprehension of it. Our ideas of right and wrong are a jumbled mess where competing morals fluctuate in importance depending on our random sympathies at any given time. At this point, dear listener, I'm going to play you another clip and I apologise that the audio isn't the greatest, but you might recall when Ayan Hirsi Ali was in Australia and there was a bunch of women who produced a video where they really went for her. And it was the sisterhood turning on uh, Hersey Alley in a vitriolic fashion that was hard to believe unless you actually saw it. And, And they were proud of themselves. And one of the women involved in that was Hannah Asafiri, who is the operator of the Moroccan Soup Bar in Fitzroy, and the winner of various community awards. And they have a thing there called um, Speed Data Muslim, where you can go in and sit down with a Muslim and ask questions about what it means to be a Muslim. Sounds great. And here she is sort of after one of those sessions talking to the ladies left behind um, about her ideas. So I'll just play some of that.
5: That, that thankfully, we're we're kind of developing an insight and an understanding of one another's humanity through these forums. But um, and with that, I suppose today some of the themes emerging seem to be about um, some of the politics specific to Arab Muslim countries, or well, not just Arab, but to Muslim countries. And in the name of uh, Islam, some of the atrocities committed that seems to be a theme across most. Uh, Issues, almost pages, the conversation. So I guess i want to speak today just very briefly. And that is to say, Islam, like Christianity, like Judaism, like Western democracies, like atheism, Buddhism, any ism you can think of, that all these social systems are founded by um, and expressed through male conceptualization. Yeah, There is nothing faith-based uh, that legitimate the injustice and the expression of violence um, and and can be justified in accordance with the faith of Islam or any other faith in my view. So with that when you seek to understand the atrocities happening in Saudi and some of the infighting and warring etc etc and all the perception of um, male polygamy, I think one of the questions was, in terms of what's in the Quran and how it's applied and how it is used to justify the violence against the individual and or communities, whether it be women or gays or whatever. Um, I guess what I put to you is that any any sentence, any revelation, any sentence, any quote, um, unless it's interpreted. In and through a sentiment and an understanding that it was revealed in and it's in its social context, then it can be interpreted and justify its opposite of. And an example of that is when um, Gandhi said, Be the change you want to see in the world. And that was expressed through a sentiment of humanity. Equally so did Hitler. And the expression of that society was one of monstrous violence. Now, in the same way we can interpret, any uh, written quote, expression, revelation, when we seek to interpret uh, polygamy or uh, violence against women and justify and find justification for violence inside the ground, then we are in fact departing from the very context of the revelation of Islam. I mean, look at us. There is nothing about us that is uh, passive or submissive. We will not be pacified by men, by uh, social institutions, by governments, or whatever. We we believe in upholding a freedom and a sense of social justice for all. Inside that system of belief, we also believe that male uh, institutions, certainly over the last few hundred years, have departed from the very revelation of Islam. So when we interrogate and question and inquire about why social systems across the globe are behaving in such monstrous ways, I put to you that this is consistent with male behaviour across time, that this is nothing to do with Islam and that you give it power by attributing it to a faith that is founded on notions of justice and humanity.
1: Well, that, dear listener, I think... This is an example of what Alistair McIntyre was talking about. <laughs> you know, ideas of right and wrong are a jumbled mess, where competing morals fluctuate in importance depending on our random sympathies at any given time. I've got no doubt she's well-meaning. Actually, I just she's just completely wrong, and um, you know. Well, in summary, her argument. Um, uh, it's all uh, a misinterpretation and otherwise it's just the fault of men. Um, actually, on the score of interpretation, I think we've heard that before. What was that?
0: I don't know. I was too busy talking a big nose. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers.
5: What's so special about the cheesemakers?
0: Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products.
1: Yes, there's been misinterpretations uh, throughout history. J- just just briefly, I'm getting to the end of it, dear listener. Uh, you know, she's got a big thing about men and the patriarchy and how it's all their fault. And, you know, the implication is that just all men have all got it made. And, you know, of course, dear listener, it's the thing you do such broad brush strokes. I mean... Some men are having a very hard time and some women are having a great time and vice versa, and uh, uh, it's pretty ballsy, the statement she was making, uh, without any qualification. So just I'll I'll provide some qualifications um, from an article that I'll link to. Consider struggles faced particularly by American men. According to research published in the Huffington post Uh, Men receive jail sentences that are 63% higher on average than their female counterparts when committing the same crime. Also, men are significantly more likely to be the victim of violent crime. Men comprise over 90% of workplace fatalities. They are the majority of the homeless and the majority of suicide victims. Men make up over 95% of all combat deaths. Uh, And in this article, a person says, I feel that I must clarify that my bringing attention to these issues faced by American men in no way serves to diminish those issues faced by exclusively American women. Rather, I hope these issues serve to place an inkling of doubt in their minds. Perhaps the structure of American society isn't the one-dimensional hierarchy of privilege that was laid out for them by their college instructors. Uh, Also, women make up the majority of American college students. Um, uh, I'll finish off with this. Can we not consider a vision of justice for society that takes into account the unique situation of the individual. Some black Americans have genuinely been held back by discrimination. Others have not. Some white Americans lead comfortable lives of relative privilege. Others lead lives ravaged by personal hardship. Some women are held back by gender stereotypes and sexual violence. Others aren't. Some men lead comfortable lives. Others face a myriad of socially and biologically cultivated injustices. Postmodernists and social justice warriors will call will view my call for a more nuanced, individualistic approach to rectifying social injustices as the ramblings of a privileged white male who is blinded by the benefits afforded to him by the systems of oppression within society. But it is their twisted view of justice that threatens the freedom of all. To make someone complicit in an oppression based upon the colour of their skin or the shape of their genitals is a greater form of discrimination than they understand. There we go. All right, dear listener, that was a long one. Um, But I'm just trying to get across the idea that uh, there are changes happening in our society that we need to be aware of that the Christian element is busily working away in our political system and has been for a long time, it's extremely powerful, it's slowing down not only reforms of, you know, just social justice issues that should have been passed long ago, but it will bring in... A very hardline form of neoliberalism as well, because of this prosperity gospel and its and its bolstering of the right wing. So think about your grandchildren and your great grandchildren and how are they going to cope if you know if the opportunities aren't there? So, you know, right wing Tony listening to this might accuse me of, of sounding like a rabid socialist. Um and, you know, really what we've got to aim for is an equality of opportunity, not necessarily an equality of outcome. It's okay for people to end up rich and some people end up poor. It's just the way it will work. But people have to have the opportunity to move through the, through the system. And if we follow that American system, they won't have the opportunity. The social mobility will be gone and if you're born into a poor class, you'll remain there, no matter h- how hard you work. We've got to avoid that. So how what we do from here, I don't know. I mean, you know. Disaster, what's the worst thing? What could be worse than a disaster looming would be a disaster looming and we don't even know it. So we just going to be aware that it's there. We have to do something. And that's it, dear listener, the end of a marathon session a couple lots of stuff in there hopefully you enjoyed it we'll be back to normal podcasting next week with with Paul and uh, Scott and obviously as you can tell by that solo rant it's a lot better when there's a few of us around bouncing off ideas so I'm looking forward to that hopefully you are as well and send us some love and some feedback or some suggestions if you like and yeah, uh, tune in next week Thanks for thanks for getting through two hours of this, and we'll, we'll be talking with you next week. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said, and when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.